Welcome to episode number 251. Today's episode is a fun one because we're talking about one of my favorite things, which is growing your own food and specifically perennials. Perennials right now hold a even more dear and special place in my heart because I don't have to start them from seed and they require really very little work once they are established. And today is fun because we're talking about what fruit and nut trees to plant now for an earlier harvest because with a lot of your fruit trees and your perennials, it can sometimes be years before you actually get a harvest. So we're gonna cover ones that will get you there a little bit faster. And also some uncommon plants that are edible that people aren't as familiar with. As we're, I've always been fascinated by this. I grew up in a family where we did some foraging. From the time I was a little girl, my dad would take me out and we would go hunting different mushrooms and we knew there was different weeds or what people would call weeds um, that could be eaten. And so I had an education when I was little to a degree, but I'm learning there are so many more plants that we can eat and are edible that most people don't know about. Kind of like that lost knowledge, which I feel in this time is even more important than ever. And we had already planned on putting in more of a focus on bringing in more edible plants into our landscaping and onto our homestead than we have had even previously, but this has just given us even more of a push in order to do so. So I'm really excited for this episode. I brought Joe back on from Rain Tree Nurseries, and I also have a coupon code. So if you want 10% off, if you hear about some of these, and definitely go and check the show notes because some of them are so intriguing, you're going to want to get the actual name and more information on them. And you can also get the coupon code as well in the blog post that accompanies this episode at melissaknorris.com forward slash 251. So just the numbers, number two, number five, number one, because this is episode number 251. And you can use the coupon code Modern Homestead to get 10% off. But there's some really fun ones. In fact, I'm going to be having a video coming out very soon on my YouTube channel if we're not hooked up over there. I've got some awesome stuff because I love my podcasts. You all know I'm a podcast junkie, but there's some things we just visually need to be able to watch. So you're going to want to check out the YouTube channel. I'm going to be having some really fun episodes coming out on planting fruit trees and some of these more um, uncommon plants. It's going to be a lot of fun. And just today, right before I jumped on here to record this intro for you, I just placed an order for sea berries, aka sea buckthorn, which you're going to hear about and learn about in today's episode. I just have one little thing that I wanted to mention. As we get into the episode, you're going to hear us talk about black walnut and toxic nut trees. And you'll we'll get in here more, but there was a note that I put in the written blog post, um, not so much when Joe and I were actually having a discussion. And you're probably like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about because I'm not at that point of the episode yet, but just trust me. You're going to want to listen to the episode and when it hits this spot, then you'll understand why, I'm, why I am bringing this up right now. But there are more crops I should say there are some crops that are more tolerant of being planted near a black walnut tree than others. And so if you have a black walnut tree or considering putting one in, 
then you're definitely going to want to check out the show notes and pay some attention to when we begin discussing that. But there's so much good information packed into this episode. I can't wait to just have you dive in. So without further ado, here is the episode. Well, guys, I'm really excited to have our guest back today because I learned so much as well as you guys let me know you learned a ton too. So Joe, welcome back to the Pioneering Today podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back, Melissa. Yeah, well, I'm, I was really excited to talk to you anyways about this because growing fruit trees and perennials uh, is, oh my goodness, I love it just because it's a lot less work. I love my annual vegetable garden. Don't get me wrong, but there's something about having it. It's planted once for most things. Um, and just a couple of things, a couple of times a year, and it pretty much takes care of itself. Um, so I'm looking to actually increase, we had already planned on though. I know a lot of people now with everything at the time of this recording with the coronavirus are looking to increase what they're growing at home too. But we, I'd already planned to put in quite a few new fruit trees. I'd been in contact with you guys about but I thought it would be fun to talk about some of the things that people might not be as aware of or aren't mentioned as much when we're thinking about fruit trees and berries. What are some of the lesser known types of berries that grow in North America? Well, I'd say that there are dozens of species of lesser known berries and 20 times more cultivars that are, you can grow here in the North American continent. Lots of them grow right here in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, like a short list of that may include sea berries or otherwise known as sea buckthorn, cornelian cherry, which is the edible dogwood, cornus moss, autumn olives, gummies, uh, Chilean myrtle, also called luma, uh, the chocolate berry, which is a Himalayan honeysuckle, strawberry trees. I mean, they're not that choice, but they're 100% edible. And Hathcap, which is the old-fashioned name for honeyberry, um, originally native to northern Japan, it grows very well in the Pacific Northwest. Okay, awesome. One thing we have that grows here just, I'm assuming natively, because it grows all around and we haven't planted it, well, we call them salmon berries. I honestly don't know if that's their technical botanical Latin name or not. Well, the salmon berry is the colloquial form. And yes, they are native to the Pacific Northwest. Um, some cultivars grow very large and they do very well in the shade. I have some salmon berries myself. I'm very fond of the ones that are orange. Yeah. Uh, if you're curious, Latin is Rubus spectabilis. Ah, thank you. Yeah, we just had always called them salmon berries. So that's that's good to know. But I feel like it's not... Like when I go in and look, you know, through catalogs or online at websites and stuff at different berries, it's salmon. That's not one that I see pop up a ton. So I was just curious there. Well, it is one that we carry at Rain Tree Nursery if you're curious to get more. But yeah, those are per native to Alaska all the way down to California and even as far inland as Idaho. Oh. So you'll find them all over the Pacific Northwest. Awesome. Okay. Good to know. And I love, yeah, ours grow native just in the, in the wooded, the shaded areas, like you said, or sometimes kind of on the border. Um, but they, they are one that produce well in more forest type environments. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, because this is an area I don't have any experience in, but would love to, to grow not only in my experience, but also actually growing them themselves is nut trees. So growing nut trees in addition to fruit trees, tell me 
how they, how, what we need to know about them? Well, I think you've heard me say in the past that fruit trees are the wisest investment that you as a homeowner can make. And I would say that about nut trees twice over. Um, nut trees are going to take longer than fruit trees to start bearing, at least a, a usable crop of nuts. You're looking at about five years at minimum for a hazelnut plantation or 10 years or longer for most walnuts and chestnuts. But when nut trees are mature, they're actually more productive than most fruit trees of a similar size. They create more calories, more edible calories per year than the fruit does. And nuts, they have a great wintertime value. They provide the necessary fats, proteins, and starches the body needs long after even the very last of the keeper apples have become unusable. So really, the question isn't, should I grow nuts? The question is, how many nuts should I grow? Because you need to get them planted now if you want to have them 10 years from now. Okay, so with the nut trees, on average, I must have missed that part. Is it 10 years before you're going to get a really good harvest or they start to start producing younger? No, 10 years is pretty much when they turn on. I mean, when they turn okay. on, they turn on. They're big trees already. But they've got a lot of infrastructure to hang flowers off of. Um, a lot of times I tell people to go ahead and start with hazelnuts because you'll mm -hmm. get them about five years. Okay. They just grow a lot faster, but they're small trees. And you can get those nuts early, and then you can wait while your walnuts and your chestnuts, which you should also plant at the same time, really come on. But if you're looking for, for the nuts, then, yeah, you're, you're probably going to have to do a 10-year plan. And okay. they're big trees, so you have to plan for the fact that eventually they will take up a lot of space. Um, and that you have a choice to use that space while they're still growing or leave it open. That's up to you. But in the end, you're going to need 25 by 25 for a nut tree. Okay. Now that's with 25 feet by 25 feet. Yes. With the nut trees, do they require more full sun like a lot of your fruit trees or will they do okay in, in partial shade or kind of what, what's ideal growing conditions? Ideally, the ripening of the nut needs sunlight for the nut okay. so you're looking at i mean the nuts themselves i guess technically are in partial shade always because of the size of the tree but the trees do best in full sun okay. once a chestnut or a walnut is fully grown it's kind of going to be in full sun by default it's going to be taller and larger than most anything you've planted okay so unless you're trying to make it fight with a bunch of evergreen trees which i would not suggest you're going to have kind of default full sun on those walnuts and chestnuts. The hazelnuts want full sun and their production will continue in partial shade, but it won't be anywhere near as good. In Europe, what they do is they plant a bunch of hazelnuts out mm -hmm. and they plant a bunch of chestnuts or walnuts in between them. And then they harvest the hazelnuts until they're no longer sufficiently productive. And then they cut them down because by then they're drowning in chestnuts and walnuts anyway. Oh, that's interesting. So I have to ask, because I know black walnut, I'm assuming only black walnut and not other walnuts, but the black walnut tree can be toxic to other plant life around it. Is that only the black walnut or does that extend to any of the other walnuts too? Well, the term is not toxic. The term is aliopathic. There are oils in the black walnut itself that prevent root growth and seed germination. That said, I have four black walnut trees of my own, 
and there's a whole lot that grows under them, no problem. Okay. I wouldn't really consider black walnut to be toxic or dangerous as a tree. Okay. It's got a reputation for that, but my personal experience from having personally grown them is that it's kind of overhyped. Uh, cedar trees are way more aggressive and difficult to grow next to your food crops than black walnuts are. Hmm. Interesting. I have cedars near some of my, my, well, I have cedars all over, but not, not directly near to the vegetable garden, but I do have them near other plants. So that's fascinating. Oh yeah. Cedar trees are chemical warfare factories. They have so many caustic and aliopathic oils they produce that there's very little that grows under them. Like maybe seven to nine different plants you'll find natively grown under those trees. And everything else, the, oil, the soil is either too acid, too dry, or they can't deal with the oils that are constantly dripping from the cedar trees year-round. Hmm. That's good. Now I'm going to have to go out and look under them. Most of them are kind of in a border with some other evergreens or other cedars next to them. So I haven't noticed. Um, it, it's not any food crops. I've got like some lilacs near them, uh, et cetera. So I guess I'll have to keep an eye out on those. Um, yeah, what? well, I mean, ro rhododendron grows well. Douglas fir, of course, grows well. There are ferns. Evergreen huckleberries do fine. I mean, it's not that nothing grows under cedars, just that it's a lot less than grows under everything else. Good. So if you have some weed areas, <laughs> it may be a good idea to plant a cedar there. Um, good, good to know. And it actually, it's funny. I do have my rhododendron next to the cedar, and it's doing uh, really well. So anyways, um, that was kind of a bit of a side topic, but always fascinating what other uncommon or lesser known fruits and berries do you guys offer or you know want to kind of highlight and bring to people's attention that's a great question rain tree has long been a destination for heritage and un, what we call, might call unusual edibles the longer i've been doing this the less unusual these things become to me but for the average person uh passion fruit uh, has a almost alien looking kind of flower, which is one of the major selling points for it. People really like that. And it has pretty good fruit on it too, but um, that could be considered very unusual. Wintergreen, which is a small ground cover like plant with big bright red berries that taste well like wintergreen. It's where wintergreen oil comes from. That sharp, spicy, cool, aggressively almost cold flavor. It's right there in this little red berry. It's very surprising. You eat the berry, you're expecting something else. You're not expecting wintergreen. Acabia is a very weird kind of looking fruit. It's a seasonal delicacy in Japan, and I've had some. It's pretty good. The texture is kind of weird. They look uh, like big alien bean pods, and then they have a pseudo-gelatinous, kind of like mochi ice cream textured gel interior which has some seeds, but tastes like banana custard. So mm. there's that. Okay. Uh, Tunis sinensis or fragrant spring tree. Um, considered in the South, North Carolina through Georgia to be invasive. Uh, Chinese red mahogany is another name for it. Tree of heaven is another name for it. Regardless, the leaves are edible. Um, it's sometimes called the chop suey tree because um, they'll harvest the lower leaves when they're young and use them as a, uh, a vegetable food. We uh, carry several Andean and Incan tubers, like um, Yacon, as an example. Those are 
they're like spicy potatoes. Mm. They grow very well in this part of the world. And some of them even are best after the light freezes we get in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And then um, habella vine, or what they call sausage vine, it's related to acabia, uh, has a almost, they say it's a, a meaty kind of flavor, a spiced kind of sausage. And it looks like a sausage, the fruit that comes off of it. Um, those would definitely be considered unusual, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. So I'm curious on the sausage plant. So I'm, I'm, if it tastes like sausage and kind of even looks like it, then it, it's more of like a savory. You wouldn't be eating it like as a sweet, like you would be using it in savory dishes. Yes. And no. I mean, really, habella is not really part of a food menu. It's kind of a thing you just eat on its own. Oh, okay. So kind of just like a snack uh, or just tasting it. Acabia is a very deep uh, conversation because of acabia Despite the small amount of acabia that is sold in the United States, acabia is actually a very wide-ranging, genetically variable group of plants. Um, so, you know, acabia quintata is the one they were talking about. It's kind of a coconut or banana custard flavor as opposed to habella, which is related but has a completely different flavoring profile. There's... A lot to discuss there that's probably out of the scope of this particular episode. Okay. But there's way more edible food than we think there is out there in the world. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I actually wanted to ask you because I am getting one and I'm really excited about it. But I, oh goodness, I want to say probably like two to three years ago was the first time I'd heard of it. And probably part of that is regionally, um, but it was lesser known to me and I'm really excited about it. And that's the pawpaw. Could you just give us a brief talk about that? Pawpaw, native to the East Coast of the United States, otherwise known as the custard apple. That's Amina triobila. Pawpaws are evolved to grow in understories. So we've got like say a maple or oak forest on the East coast, which is where pawpaw would natively grow. Mm-hmm. Pawpaws, uh, they need full shade for the first three years of their life. Their, their bark is particularly thin and they will scald and die from oh. too much direct sunlight. Okay. As the tree gets older, um, it still maintains some of that resistance, but they shoot up to 20, 25 feet. They're supposed to break canopy and get the, their full sun on their leaves while maintaining a certain amount of shade on their trunk. Oh. And the places Papa is grown in plantations, they use a di- diluted latex paint to paint the trunk white. And that will protect it from scalding to some degree. Okay. They produce large yellowish green to brown fruits. Uh, there's a lot of different improved pawpaws that exist now. They are a taprooted plant. The taproot is very fragile so when planting it you have to make sure that the soil is loose and that you don't break that taproot when you put it in and then they need lots and lots of mulch like every year leaves are decaying on me all the time around me because i live in a deciduous forest kind of mulch it's the pawpaw tree is not a fire and forget kind of plant they get huge and they can be very productive but you're going to spend some time keeping them healthy and happy Okay. Well, I had not done my full research yet, so I'm glad I asked you about that because I'm going to have to go out and scout. Um, so kind of at like the, the forest edge, or we have some different alders and some different maples in our top pasture. 
I'm assuming I'd have to put some protection around it when it was young so the cows don't nibble on it. Um, but it sounds like you kind of need it to be in that type of environment. It's not just when you're going to plant out in the middle of your field or a sunny area in the garden or something like that. Or you can use hoop houses and shade cloth to protect it by giving it that kind of shade. That's another option. Okay. So the first three years, I'm assuming it'll, it doesn't get too tall in those first three years. So it's easier to well shade it. It, it how, does. It does. Okay. When they're growing, when they're growing well, they grow quickly. Okay. But you should be able to pull it off. Other people have done it. There are plant pawpaw plantations that exist. They're right out there in the full sun. So those okay. trees were able to get situated and developed. I wouldn't say that it's anywhere near impossible to do. It's just one of those things that takes more care. They have a high attrition rate. It's like 30% death rate in transplants. So, you know, just got to be prepared to be careful and to be caring and not to get your hopes up too high because if one dies, that's not uncommon. Okay. Good, good to know. So you're prepared ahead of time, <laughs> which is good. Um, I, I, I would love to say this is a great tree and you can plant it and it's super easy and everybody should buy one. I would love to say that, but I'm going to be honest with you that pawpaw is not the easiest tree to grow, period, in my opinion, but certainly not here in the Pacific Northwest where we tend to have hot, dry summers. Yeah. It's not what the pawpaw wants. Okay. The pawpaw wants cooler, moister environment. It wants to keep its trunk shaded. It wants to keep its roots mulched. And you can do all of that. It's just more work than planting out a bunch of trees and watering them once a week. Okay. So be prepared to baby it more so than, than I'm used to with some of the other regular fruit trees. Mm -hmm. it's, but yeah. Once it's mature, it shouldn't take really many much maintenance at all. It still needs mulched, but it's not a tree that you go up and prune. It kind of takes care of itself after it's fully grown. Well, that's good. That was actually my next question is, do you prune it like other regular fruit trees? And you just answered that. So, okay, good to know. I'm excited to get it actually. Switching gears just a little bit though, especially in kind of what we're experiencing, like I said, at the time of this recording across much of the globe, but definitely here in Washington state. Um, what do you know about berries with medicinal value as well? Oh, quite a bit. There are lots of awesome fruits and vines and berries that have medicinal qualities. Some of them are very common, like raspberries and blueberries are, are huge. Bearberries, sorry, blueberries are a huge superfood. I mean, they're good for your insulin. Uh, they, in some studies, blueberries have been used to actually improve or even reverse insulin resistance in diabetic and prediabetic patients. They improve your memory. They are, of course, full of antioxidants, help prevent the cancer, full of vitamin C, help keep your immune system strong. And raspberries, again, full of vitamin C, full of vitamins, full of nutrients. There is some belief that even raspberries can help improve eyesight as you get older, since macular degeneration is primarily a vitamin C issue. At least oh. that's what the studies suggest. I'm not a doctor. Got, yes. Um, <laughs> Other berries that have health benefits, of course, elderberries. I think you said you have recently done a program on elderberries. Yes. Elderberries are a very long and deeply respected berry with lots of folklore and tradition around it. There is some empirical evidence that there is active antiviral components in elderberry, which makes it very germane to the things that are going on right now here in the United States and the rest of the world. 
Yeah. Um, and they're pretty easy to grow. I mean, one does have to be careful to make sure you cook it because elderberries do upset the belly quite firmly when they're eaten raw. I wouldn't say they're dangerous, but there's a certain amount of cyanide that's created in raw elderberries when you digest them. So you definitely want to go ahead and cook them. That way there's no cyanide created and it can un, you can benefit from those antiviral properties. You can benefit from the nutrients and from the flavonoids and from all of the vitamin C that's in them. They're a fantastic, fantastic berry for your health. I personally have elderberry syrup all the time in my fridge. Yes. Yeah, wintergreen. Wintergreen is uh, a regular medicinal berry they use in uh, China. Um, wintergreen oil in particular is used topically to reduce inflammation. Uh, sea berries or sea buckthorn are incredibly nutritious and high in vitamin C. So much so that the majority that we have that are improved varieties were created by the Soviets during the Cold War. It was such a critical berry for their military operations to keep the soldiers and the population healthy and strong during the period of time that they really doubled down on improving the sea berry a whole lot. Um, I think it's called a bubliberry. In Russian, which means um, cluster berry functionally. That's what a woman recently told me anyway, which I think is fascinating. But yeah, they're, 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 it, they're eating them. Is like, it's like orange juice concentrate. There's, like, there's a lot of vitamin C there, but there's also a lot of sugar in it that kind of buffers that. They're fantastic. I think sea berries are amazing. Um, less commonly known might be Cassandra berry or what we call Eastern Prince Magnolia vine. Very, very healthful. Again, the Russians and Chinese both love Cassandra berry. Grows well in the shade. Um, the tips of the vines can also be boiled as kind of an ad hoc caffeine boost, kind of like mm. coffee or an energy drink. That's what it's traditionally used for in, oh. in uh, the lower eastern block. Um, and then there's Hoshu Wu vine or five flavor berry, long prized by the Chinese for. Uh, a general blood and energy tonic. It's one of those things that you just kind of eat on all the time and it keeps you healthy and happy. So those, there's a list, a short list of berries and fruits with medicinal qualities. Oh, I love it. There's some ones in there that I have not ever had or tried that now I'm looking at you to increase my list. <laughs> I need to add them in, especially ones that will grow in shade. Cause I have some shaded area on our property that I would love to turn into more uh, both medicinal and edible plants um, than what I've got just there currently. But I do have a question on the elderberries because I know a lot of people are looking uh, to grow elderberries because they are so well known and have, you know, all those great properties that we discussed there. Um, with the European elderberries, how long is it before you plant, say it's a one-year-old plant, before you'll begin to get production? They typically produce pretty quickly. The thing people got to know about elderberries is their roots are fragile, so you don't want to mess with them too much. They, they feel like they're elastic, but they're actually quite brittle. And so they can take a certain amount of handling, but if you tug on them too hard, they just snap. And that's very bad for the plant. They're not one of those plants that can just grow off of one root and be fine. They need all their roots. Okay. And water in the summer. Pacific Northwest typically is very dry summers. And the elderberries will suffer very badly without the supplemental water. Okay. If you can go ahead and you make sure you don't damage them when you plant them, 
They've got a nice wide hole, which is pretty standard for all plant planting. You need a wide hole for those roots to stretch out. And you get them that supplemental water, you should have fruit as soon as the next year. Certainly within a couple of years, they'll start flowering and fruiting. Okay. Good to know. Because I know with fruit trees, obviously, and especially the nut trees, it's a lot longer. But usually berries are a lot quicker to produce. So I just was curious on the European elderberries specifically, because that's what I have in. I put them in uh, two years ago, and I didn't get any blossoms last year. So this summer, oh gosh, let me see. I think I just misspoke that. I put them in one year. I'm coming up on my second summer having them in the ground. So I should expect that I will have some blossoms this year. We're going to find out. We will. We'll see. I, I have mulched and amended them well. So hopefully, hopefully I'll get some, some flowers this year. Um, I know I, I kind of went off on that because I was just curious. I'm trying to, to, I was like, oh man, I hope they, I really hope they produce this year. So I was just kind of curious following the guidelines there, if that was going to be the case with their age. Um, but we were talking about those vines, the different vines. And I do have, we have grapes, um, which I'm excited to try making some wine out of our grapes this year. I've typically just done juice and jelly and jam and just fresh eating. I haven't uh, dove into doing any fermentation much with them. But besides grapes, what are other kinds of fruiting vines that are pretty easy to grow? Well, we've mentioned acabia. You can grow acabia by falling asleep next to it. It's a pretty easy to grow vine. Uh, you do need two of them to make sure you get the cross-pollination of the liver fruit, but okay. there's no fight. Acabia loves to grow and is really well situated for the Pacific Northwest. It does not like too much heat. So for your listeners that are living in uh, hotter, drier climates, your acabia might need a little bit of partial shade, honestly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then there's Arguda kiwi. Uh, Arguda kiwi isn't very hard to grow. I mean, keep it some wet, but not too wet. Keep it out of the wind. And as soon as it starts to flower, it drowns you in fruit. The, once they really get established, you actually have to fight to prune them more than grow them because they will grow very, very quickly and create massive amounts of wood every single year. Um, as an anecdote, they do actually uh, tolerate some partial shade as well though their fruit quality is far better in full sun. Okay, good to know. So um, do they need like a trellis type system? Like we have a, a, a big backyard arbor that goes over our patio and the grapes grow on that, which is awesome because it provides shade for us in the summertime. And, and then you've got all just, you're under there and you've got this food that's just li living that you can grab and eat. Um, but do those require some type of arbor or trellising system as well? I'm assuming most vines will, but I'm just curious. Yeah, most vines are going to require something like that because the vertical growth is really, they want to grow up and that's, that helps them flower, is to help them grow up. That's okay. just the way they're evolved. If a vine can't get some height, then it's not in an environment that promotes reproduction. And so it's not going to be, it's not going to promote reproduction until it can find some sort of vertical place to live up a tree, on a fence on an arbor on the side of your house. Just okay. letting it lay on the ground, it's not going to flower readily because it's not in an environment that's good for reproduction. Gotcha. So some type of support system is going to be needed for it to produce. Production, of course, is the same thing as reproduction for the plant. 
Gotcha. And what we're after. I mean, I love it for it to look nice, but honestly, <laughs> I'm after the food as well. So I, so this is a question. I'm going to be curious about your answer on, on this one for me specifically, and that is growing citrus in the Pacific Northwest. Now, I'm technically gardening zone 7A, but where I live up in the, in the foothills of the Cascades, we have occasionally, not every winter and not usually for more than a week, but sometimes we will get storms that come through cold snaps and we'll be close, definitely like four degrees. I don't know if we've ever actually been to zero, but we definitely have gotten into those single digits and lower single digits. So can I grow citrus where I live, but how about the rest of the Pacific Northwest as well? Uh, the short answer is yes and no. Okay. As with most <laughs> things with plants. Even, even though you're in a zone seven, which is one of the warmer zones through the Pacific Northwest, you're still about a zone and a half short of being able to grow citrus outside. Okay, that's what I thought, but I just wanted to double check. And so that's the no part. But what about the yes part, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked, Melissa, <laughs> because there are a lot of people who want to grow citrus in places that they can't normally grow citrus. And yes. that's where stuff like Meyer lemon comes in. Meyer lemon is like probably the most commonly known by backyard growers. And it's grown in the southern United States just as often as it's grown anywhere else, but it's a dwarfing lemon tree. Okay. And that's been bred for that. They do great in pots and you can keep them outside for six to eight months. But, you know, once the winter period starts, you kind of got to bring them in so that they, they keep that temperature that they need. But they do fine in a pot. You can put it in a whiskey barrel and roll it in and out. It's not a big deal. Additionally, barris and Australian finger limes can be grown in even smaller pots and do well in similar conditions. Calamondin can be grown inside during the cold periods and outside during the summer, and it will fruit. It's not a big deal. Um, there is, however, now they bring it up, and I, we don't carry it at Rain Tree, but for you, I will tell you, and I guess by extension everybody else, there is a Japanese citrus called yuzu, Y-U-Z-U, mm -hmm. that is evergreen and will remain evergreen outdoors in the Pacific Northwest and produce a very powerfully flavored lemon lime fruit and you can 100% grow that here okay and I wouldn't have to bring it indoors I don't bring mine indoors and they do just fine okay very fascinating so for say the lemon Meyer, just because I know a lot of people are familiar with the lemon Meyer tree um in a pot like a half whiskey barrel size and bringing it indoors what can you expect as an average harvest off of a tree that size that's in a pot like a decent amount or well it's a very quantitative answer that you're asking <laughs> a qualitative answer you're asking for what's okay, a just... decent amount I mean, okay realistically you probably get you know 15 or 20 fruit off one of those trees i consider that um, decent they do, okay. they do much much better in hotter climates where they can grow larger uh -huh. and more freely outside i mean they can be incredibly productive in those parts of the world right georgia florida mississippi louisiana um, even, you know, parts of the, uh, the Southwest, although it gets really cold at night in some of those places, and that's not going to work so well for that plant. Um, but my lemons will still be decently productive here in the Pacific Northwest. So I see no reason not to try. Okay. Well, that was exactly what I was, what I was looking after is it, you know, in the pots, like if you're only going to get one or two, unless you just love the way the leaves look, I wouldn't, con personally, I wouldn't consider it worth it, but 
you know, 15 to 20, that's a little bit different story. So I just, just was curious on that part. Um, so kind of going back to some of those plants where we were talking about kind of lesser known in that vein, are there any commonly grown plants? Now, I personally know hosta is one that's commonly grown that is actually edible and a lot of people don't know that, but are there other plants that a lot of people just, like I said, commonly have growing? Um, they don't think they're edible, but they actually are. Oh yeah, plenty of them. Almost all the flowers are edible. And this is a really fun subject. This is one of my favorite subjects is things you can eat that you didn't think you could eat. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite examples are daylily petals. Daylily petals are awesome. They're crisp and they're sweet. Their texture is really pleasing. And much like potato chips, you definitely want to keep eating them. It's, it's a sad thing when you run out of daylily petals. <laughs> it's a very seasonal treat, but it's fantastic. And a lot of people grow daylilies, but they don't grow daylilies for the eating the flowers. 100% can and should, in my opinion. Mm. Um, additionally, maple blossom. Maple, people grow maples all over the place up here, whether they want to or not. Yeah. And maple blossoms are very edible and very awesome. They're mildly sweet. They're vegetative. But they've kind of got this nectar thing going on, of course, because they're blossoms. And, yeah, the native peoples used to eat them really regularly. Uh, again, it's a very seasonal treat. They're not in bloom for long. Yeah. But you should definitely go out and try them when you can. Well, I will because I have a ton of them on our property, and I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're super great. You, you can cook them if you want, but I just eat them raw. Uh, elderflower, which actually should be cooked um, or used as a flavoring, okay. is 100% edible. Uh, fireweed flowers are very sweet. So are chickweed flowers. Mm -hmm. Those are 100% edible. Most forms of bamboo are edible. Some are more choice than others, but one-year-old shoots can be harvested and peeled. It's a little bit of work, but with some preparation, bamboo is very commonly eaten in other parts of the world. Um, plantain tastes a bit like spinach. It's arguably more nutritious. Yeah. And I would suspect all of your, viewer, your listeners probably have some plantain growing in their yard right now. Yes, um, yes. Most people are aware that dandelion greens and dandelion blossoms, which, by the way, dandelion is related to lettuce, if you didn't know that. Um, those are 100% edible. And then cattail pollen. I don't know how much cattail access you have, but cattail pollen is something like 91% protein. Oh. It's basically naturally occurring protein powder. Oh, that's fascinating. And you can stick the cattail in a plastic bag and shake it. And you do that enough times, and you'll have a whole gallon Ziploc full of protein powder. Oh, that's very cool. I'm gonna I don't know how much we do have of that. I'm going to go have to go do some hunting. Um, but definitely the planting of the dandelion, like you said, are something most people have growing kind of no matter where you live. And I'll link to in today's blog post that goes with this. Um, those are also some great medicinal plants as well, especially topically and making salves and different things like that. And I've got some different um, tutorials and recipes on how to do that. Mm -hmm. So I'll make sure and pop them in there. But um, I, I learned quite a few new ones on there that I wasn't aware of. So thank you. Now, I have one last question. <laughs> well, maybe I have one last question. I may end up having more as we get into this, but I know a lot of people are, we talked about the nut trees. Those can be, if they're hazelnut five years, the other one's 10 years. And that feels like a long time away, especially if you're like, I really 
need to be able to produce some of my own food myself now. So when we're looking at fruits and berries, what are some varieties or options that are going to give us a harvest the fastest or sooner than others? Oh, you want, you want that, I want, you want that, that plant to plant and have it right now harvest? Which I know with, I know with fruit trees and berries, but like if you do an autumn berry and raspberry, I planted them and then that, that, that autumn. So six months later, essentially I did get berries, but a lot of them, there is a, a wait time, but yeah. So if you've got some that are faster than others, I would love to have those. Yeah. Oh, I was just teasing you a little bit there, Melissa. The good news <laughs> is, is yes. If you start with your berries, you're going to get fruit right away. As you've already experienced raspberries, fruit immediately. Blackberries, even the thornless varieties, will fruit immediately. Strawberries are something that you can plant and expect to have fruit pretty much right away. If not that year, certainly the next year. So if you start with your berry crops, then you're going to have food right away. Now, there are after that, you get into your modern fruit trees. Uh, your quince, cherry, peach, blueberry, plum, pear, apple, etc. Those are going to take roughly three to five years to come on. Your mileage may vary. The same thing with grapes. Grapes, they really need at least three years before they really start putting out food. I'm sure you had that experience yourself. Um, and then you get into the later stuff, the nut trees, the sea berries, the kiwi, and some apple varieties that are on the larger stocks, the M111s, the M106, the Antonovka standard, they can take five to 10 years to start flowering. That's one of the big advantages of dwarf trees is that they put on fruit faster mm -hmm. um, for people that need the fruit faster. Uh, I personally have apple and quince trees that tried to put on fruit like the very next year, and that is a little early. That's the other limiting factor on trees is the trees going to start trying to reproduce before the root system's really ready for it. So you have to kind of thin that fruit and limit that reproduction. So that, that three-year line isn't exactly because they won't make fruit. It's because they're too young to make fruit. And if you got fruit right away, but then your tree died in five years, you wouldn't be happy, would you? No. <laughs> no. So you want to make sure that you encourage the tree to put its root, its energy into its root system. And then after that, it can make more fruit for you for many more years. But to wrap around, if you want food right now, it's going to be the strawberry, loganberry, marionberry, blackberry, any of those cane berries and the strawberries, they're going to produce very quickly. And you can certainly plant a bunch of them and have a bunch of food pretty readily. Okay. Thank you for those tips. I love that. Um, I knew I was going to have one more question, so I'm glad I said that I was not really limiting myself. But we mentioned earlier that Rain Tree has a lot of heritage varieties compared to a lot of other nurseries. Now, as far as heirloom goes when we're talking seeds, I'm well-versed. But can you give me, a, if it's possible, kind of a, a brief encapsulation of what heritage means in regards to our fruit trees and our berries. Well, in regards to fruit trees and berries, what, at least what I mean when I say heritage is I mean not one of the very small handful of varieties that you find in your supermarket. And preferably ones that have a history, which means mostly that they came from Europe. 
Um, examples might be the whole of the Cox Pippin family, Cherry Cox, Ellison's Orange, Cox Orange Pippin, very old apple, very common and very popular to this very day in, in England, but a very old apple that grows great here in the Pacific Northwest. Brownlee's Russet, basically not grown anywhere but in the UK, an awesome apple. The Bardsey apple, uh, basically not grown outside of Wales. We offer that. And it is also an awesome apple with a really interesting history. Uh, there are plenty of, uh, like, the Imperial Eponuse is a prune plum by which all prune plums are judged against. It's literally the yardstick the French use for all prune varieties is the Imperial Eponuse plum. But mostly in America, Nobody even knows that it exists. The whole Mirabelle family of plums, again, French, no surprise there. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic plums. Gage plums, very British, but very amazing. Most people don't even know about that. They know about the Italian plum, and they know about some of the Japanese and American varieties of plum, and that's all they know about. Yeah. And it's not their fault, mind you. That's when all your, when all your experience is eight different varieties of fruit in a grocery store. That's all you think exists. But there are 2,500 varieties of apples grown commercially in North America. They're estimated to be over 7,000 varieties grown, period, out of the documented 12,000 varieties of apple that are grown all over the world, some of which admittedly don't exist anymore, but they were documented to have been grown at some point. That's a lot of different kinds of apples. Yes, it is. And we're not even getting into crab apples, which were the workhorses of old orchards. Yes. We're not getting into the history of apple cider, which apple cider was literally liquid money up until like 1921 when prohibition kicked in. Yeah. The, the conversation of what is a heritage apple or what, is, what kind of fruit is heritage is an entire episode of conversation. Well, we may just we have to book another one because I, I'm very intrigued. Um, and I, I would love to know more, more about all these varieties and the heritage and, and all of that. I think it would be very fascinating. So we may just have to have another episode here. You might just be a regular guest. That just might be what happens. I'm very okay with that. Okay, good. Because I've got lots more questions. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Joe. And guys, I, we will have in the blog, I know we've, we, um, we threw out a lot of information. Joe's a wealth of information and a lot of different varieties and plants were named. And I know you're going to want to go and check some of those out and, and be like, how is that? What was that variety again? And that, so we'll have a list of all of the different things in today's blog post that goes with this episode so that you can go and grab all of those. And if you've got some questions regarding heritage fruit and apples, please make sure you can leave them in a review of the podcast episode. I'll see them there. You can go to the blog post, leave them in the comments, but I would love to have them so that we can make sure and answer them when we have Joe is now committed when he comes back on the podcast. So Joe, thanks so much for coming on. Is there anything that you want to just leave as a, as a lasting thought or suggestion or anything like that for the listeners before we wrap it up? Uh, just that, as I like to say, growing your own food and specifically fruit trees and nut trees is the very best investment that you can make. And the harder times get and the more uncertain things are, the more valuable those trees become. So set aside some land, 
buy some plants, put them in the ground and make the world a better place. Oh, I love that. Very fitting. Well, thank you so much. And I know we'll be talking again shortly. I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did learn some really fun new things. And I hope that you get some of these plants and are able to begin growing them. And you know what? I just want to thank you for hanging out with me today. Honestly, this is just a bizarre time, no matter how prepared you are or how adaptable you are. Like this is just a new normal of going through unprecedented times and just different things. And so I know I have been affected. I know you have been affected and some definitely more than others. On an emotional level, I feel like I'm a little bit on like this roller coaster. Like I have days where everything is just and everything is always good. Don't get me wrong. But I've got days where I am like, okay, you know, we're, we're doing this and things just feel pretty normal. The kids are home and my husband's home, but it kind of feels like a normal day and we're just going about our kind of new normal lives. And then I have other days where it just hits me more so on a like an emotional level that then affects my physical level. Like you guys, there was a couple of days ago where I was just so mentally exhausted. I took a nap in the middle of the day. Now I know that that sounds like a luxury and some of you would love to be able to do that. And you can't if you have younger kids or with your work schedule. And I'm still, I'm still working from home. I know I'm very fortunate that my job is from home. And so that, uh, you know, I already worked from home, but, um, I just have to tell you, I was mentally exhausted, which manifested physically. And I had to go and take a nap, um, in the afternoon for, uh, it was about 30 minutes. I just, I kind of just had to tap out, so to speak. So I want to thank you for hanging out with me because I know that we're all affected by this in one way or another and being able to still have things that you know we can listen to and to help take our minds off of it to a degree or even to help us prepare for the future. Having that plan of action is something that definitely helps. And oh, I've never been more grateful for having our garden and the fruit trees that we do have and the plants that we have, just going out and observing them, even though they're just barely some of them beginning to bud. Uh, my rhubarb is actually up. I have rhubarb that is up, but there's really not a whole lot else perennial wise. There's some things I'm pruning and working on, but just being able to just go out and walk and be amongst them has really been a soothing thing that has kind of helped me when I felt a little bit overwhelmed at times. So anyways, I just wanted to let you know that I so appreciate you. Thank you for hanging out with me. We're going to get through this. And it's my goal to give you as much help and inspiration and resources as possible. So if there are things that you need or you're like, man, I really need more info on this, reach out to me. Let me know. You can leave a review of the podcast episode and say, hey, I love this. Or maybe you didn't love it. I hope you did. <laughs> you can let me know if you didn't um, and say, but I could use some more information on this um, or shoot me a message or shoot me an email. Definitely um, wanting to make sure that I help you as much as I can. So thanks so much and share this with, I know there's many, many people who are looking to grow more of their own food now than ever before and cook from scratch now than ever before. So please do share these resources with others that you know need this information as well. And I look forward to being back on here with you. I probably will do another bonus episode next week, but for sure I'll be back here with you next Friday, if not sooner. Mm -hmm.